Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. If you are a fan of the show, then please consider supporting it through Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash Theology in the Raw. Support the show for as little as five bucks a month. More details are in the show notes. I have on the show today a name that many of you may not know, Tony Scarcello. Tony is a pastor and a friend, and he is the author of his first, well, the he's an author, a first-time author. He's got his book coming out um, in the very, very near future, in October 2020, so just a month away. It is called Fall, uh, Regenerate, Following Jesus After De- Deconstruction. Now, I'm going to get totally honest with you. I get a lot of requests to endorse books, and I typically prioritize uh, requests that come from people that I have a relationship with. So naturally, when Tony said, hey, would you consider endorsing my book? I said, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll con- consider it. I can't make any promises. Um, I get, you know, I got a lot of requests. I already have a lot of the commitments out there. I feel like I always have three or four books that I'm supposed to be <laughs> uh, endorsing. And so I ended up, you know, so I've, I've got stacks of books that I'm trying to work through. And um, so he sent me his book. And I put it on hold because I just had time to get to it for about a month. And um, finally, I saw the due date approaching for when my endorsement was due. So I said, all right, I got to crack open this book, check it out. I could not put this book down, you guys. This is such a good book. Tony's story is pretty remarkable, as as you'll hear. And he is a beautiful writer. I mean, I, I, I experienced the full range of human emotions in this book. I mean, I was on the verge of tears several times. I was laughing out loud several times. And sometimes, you know, in back-to-back pages going through that kind of, you know, yo-yo of emotions. So thank you, Tony, for messing with my heart and my mind. Tony is uh, same-sex attracted. He's attracted to guys, married to a woman been married several years and they, uh, I had Tony share, actually had Tony and his wife share their story in front of about 300 people, um, a couple of years ago and their marriage, his story, their marriage, their friendship, their honesty, their faith. His, I, I, it's, I just love this guy. I love him and everything he stands for. I love his journey. It is a, Hard journey. He's, he's been through a lot of stuff, you guys, um, and he documents that in his book. Again, it's called Regenerate, Follow Jesus After Deconstruction. Please welcome to the show for the first time, my good friend, Tony Scarcello. All right. Hey, friends. I'm here with uh, my good friend, Tony Scarcello. Uh, Tony, thanks so much for being on uh, my YouTube channel and my podcast. Thanks for having me. This is super exciting for me. So we've hung out a few times and I, I just I love hanging out with you. And, and one of the one of the interesting things about your story is this whole theme of, of deconstruction that plays a significant role in your faith journey. Now, in most cases, when a Christian that was maybe raised conservative, then they go through this deconstruction phase. Typically, they end up in, um, for lack of better terms, maybe a progressive brand of Christianity. Um, they, mm. yeah, uh, they typically react really strongly against anything that has a scent of conservatism. But you still are in a conservative environment, and you, your story isn't quite so linear. So, 
Um, your book is called Regenerate Following Jesus After Deconstruction. Um, you can pre-order it on the Whip and Stock website. Um, it'll come out on, on Amazon in maybe a month or two. Um, anyway, can you t- tell us about your journey, man. Tell us about your yeah. journey of following Jesus after deconstruction. Totally. So I, uh, um, I grew up in a very Pentecostal, very conservative church. Um, for anybody who's familiar with Jimmy Swaggart, um, my parents were big Jimmy Swaggart fans for a while and <laughs> watched a lot of his stuff. Um, and uh, I, as something that's a big piece of my story is that I'm same-sex attracted and um, kept that a secret for a long time. And I worked at a pretty conservative Pentecostal church. And after I got married, I, I kind of came out to my wife and um, came out to the staff and ended up being asked not to work there anymore. And that started this process of a total faith unraveling. And and I was, um, you know, I was one of those people that there was like, I was a reformed dude. I was, I was a, just, there was a pretty famous reformed pastor in Seattle whose teachings that I, I listened to hours and hours of back in the day. And um, like, I was, a, I really was a disciple of this guy. And um, so if you're, if you know what I'm talking about, like you're familiar with just kind of, not just the certainty, but the aggression with which you approach uh, your theology. And is, is so that, is that dark miscrule? Is that <laughs> that guy? Dark <laughs> miscrule, we, we don't yeah. name any names. <laughs> Dark risk. Yeah. Um, so when uh, when I lost my job at the church, it had kind of freed me up to ask a lot of these questions that I had really been kind of pushing down, like why am I same sex attracted? Uh, if God is sovereign, a big piece of my story is my mom overdosed when when I was twenty, and um, why did God let that happen? And you know they talk about kind of this road of skepticism and doubt being a slippery slope. And and they're right. Like it was a slippery slope right on into a full-blown faith crisis. And so for me, the the premise of the the book is kind of why I deconstructed, what was the stuff that contributed to that deconstruction. Um, And then the other side of that, I, I, what, what you hear when you talk, when you listen to a lot of people who talk about deconstruction is they talk like they have kind of reconstructed their house and, um, and that, that they have found a sturdier version of their faith. But for me, what I found after I reconstructed and was, was living in a lot of these um, more, I, I don't like the terms progressive and conservative, but more progressive uh, circles was that it didn't really seem to reflect Jesus any more than, than my hyper-fundamentalist view of things. And I'm kind of under the assumption that people don't deconstruct because of Jesus. Like most people don't have any problem with Jesus or they flat out love Jesus. What they deconstruct is because what they were handed doesn't look enough like Jesus. And when I was kind of reconstructed, I was still pretty caustic and still a bully and still willing to chomp the head off my enemy. And, um, and and it's so, yeah. So the premise of the book is just, they're actually, I'm not contending for deconstruction. I'm not contending for progressivism. I'm, I'm contending for, look, the way of Jesus will save the world. Like I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt, it's the best news there is. And so let's pass down something that that can actually regenerate people's faiths like Jesus and not lead people down this unnecessary road of spiritual violence like deconstruction. Wow. So, I mean, I, I've often said, and I think we, we've, we've had this conversation. I would love your thoughts on it that, you know, the, the sort of like hyper progressive, you know, hyper fundamentalism spectrum 
it's it's almost like a it's it's more of a horseshoe so that the farther yeah. you get to one extreme it's like you end up getting really close to the tone the posture the mindset of the other extreme um mm. did you find having swung across that spectrum is that what you're yeah. what i hear is that what i hear you saying that you kind of felt like this Absolutely. is just kind of the same posture that i had in fundamentalism just a different thing i'm fighting for now or yeah i mean one of the big tells for me was um my wife's uh, mom and dad and my dad are, are very conservative. Um, well, very conservative might not be very, not be fair. My dad's very conservative, but my wife's family's pretty conservative. And when I was reconstructed <laughs> and um, and thought I had kind of put my faith house back together, but was just all in on the progressive camp, um, they couldn't say or do anything right. And and the, here's the thing: like they are objectively some of the best people I know. But I would leave every family night, every holiday, every birthday, frustrated, complaining, gossiping, angry. Um, and it dawned on me one point after I married my wife, um, it was just my dad, brother and I. And when my mom died, like we didn't really have holidays or birthdays or anything like that. And and my wife's family took in um, not just me, but my dad and my brother to spend Christmases and Thanksgivings with them and just made the whole thing family. And I was sitting there one Christmas and I was like, my gosh, these people like demonstrate love and generosity better than anyone I've ever known. And wow. here I am wow. complaining because they voted for Trump and thinking that they're lesser people because of it. And okay. and it was just a real that was like a big turning point for me because I was just like, oh, they're better people than me. <laughs> like wow. maybe we live differently, but like they they demonstrate the love of Jesus better than me posting angry statuses on Facebook. Yeah. That that was like a, a repentance moment. And that was kind of one of those things where I can scrutinize ideas and stuff that I find, uh, for millennials' favorite term, problematic. I can scrutinize those type of things, but I don't ever want to scrutinize or reject my family, um, especially when they're doing such a good job at um, demonstrating love. Yeah. It does become very self-righteous too, doesn't it? It's like... Absolutely. <laughs> and I guess it kind of the same theme of reverse fundamentalism. It's like you, you notice everything wrong with everybody else and don't see all the good things they're doing and then you notice all the good things you're doing and don't notice all the areas where you're messed up you know and um i, I see that to, in today's culture and, and just a broader culture secular culture whatever or even church culture i mean just a lot of all the virtue signaling and lack of forgiveness like somebody yeah. digs up some stupid thing you said when you're 17 on twitter and it's like you're done it's like that that's like westboro baptist yeah. stuff Absolutely. you know there's no forgive no no room for forgiveness repentance you're you're just gone because you sinned 17 years ago i mean that's that's <laughs> crazy man <laughs> well, you know, um, i was thinking about it and i i dig a little bit into this in the book but when you look at jesus like jesus had harsh things to say but he never seemed reactionary like everything jesus did seemed intentional and rooted and so when your ideology whoop you froze there we good? Oh, you're good. Yeah, go ahead. I'll I'll cut it out, or maybe I won't. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's um, when your ide ideology causes you to be hyper reactionary or defensive. You're not rooted. You're insecure. And so if you're if you're insecure about your perspective and your belief that you can't even listen to an opposing view, um, I just don't think I don't see that in Jesus at all. And so that's that's kind of was another big thing was like I can't even listen to to my dad defend why he would want to vote for Donald Trump without 
getting angry and wanting to post a monologue on Facebook about it, that's, that's a problem. <laughs> so it is, man. That's good. That's convicting. Cause I, yeah, that's man. Yeah. I mean, it's gosh. Um, uh, where would you, I said like five different thoughts that just collided in my head at the moment. Sorry. <laughs> Welcome to my brain. Um, where would you, would you consider yourself on the spectrum? And I don't even know if we can even think of it as a spectrum. Let's just start theologically and then maybe even politically. Like where would you, you know, conservative, moderate, independent, left of center, right of center, progressive. Like how would you label yourself if you, if you had to? <laughs> I think. Theologically, I I think I'm pretty conservative. Um, I know a lot of people, a lot of people in my church who would probably disagree with that. Um, I I frequently find myself not being progressive enough for my progressive friends or conservative enough for my conservative friends. But I I I am like having my beliefs and viewpoints being rooted in scripture. Um, I'm a big big fan of the creeds. Like. That stuff is super, super important to me. And when I hear any, especially the creeds have been my biggest mm. kind of guide for what my essentials are. And when I hear anything that the views away from that might, you know, I, you might be a great person, but I don't, if you can't affirm the creeds, which is the most basic expression of Christianity, then I don't even know that it's fair to call yourself a Christian. And yeah. and I don't make it my, I try to not to make it my business to decide who's a Christian and who's not. That's, that's God's deal. But as far yeah. as just discerning, if you can't, affirm the creeds, then you're affirming something else. And in, in my perspective, yeah. um, now, some people who would say the creeds is not, not firm enough. Like you gotta, you got, it's gotta be a hundred percent biblical. And I don't think anybody lives a hundred percent biblical because it, yeah. depending on what you read, you can defend any stance, yeah. but I also yeah. have people who think that's too restricting to limit it, huh. to have the creeds be yeah. your limits. Let, let's go there. Yeah. Cause I, I got some thoughts on that. Um, I, um, I would, in general, I think I would be where you're at. Um, my two qualifications would be the, the even the construction of the creeds. It did happen in a specific cultural, um, yeah. historical context, and it was they were formed. I'm not a historian, so I, I hope I'm not speaking past what actually happened. But they they were formed kind of in response to certain heresies of the day, and we have a new. Every every gen every generation of Christians will have its own unique things that it needs to respond to. Um, so that if we were con to construct a, a creed today, it might look slightly different, or there might be slightly different emphasis or, or points being made. That that'd be my one qualify qualification. Yeah. Another one would be the creeds do focus on orthodoxy, right belief, because yeah. so much of orthopraxy was not disputed. Yeah. Um, so they didn't they didn't need to. I mean, it's, and I'm sure we'll get into this later, but they they didn't need to have a position on kind of sexuality because even the heretics weren't arguing against, you know, the meaning of marriage or, you know. Um, right. So but but we might need that today because there's a lot more confusion today, I think, over what it meant to what it means to actually follow Jesus or like in the early church. I mean, well, <laughs> we don't have. <laughs> We don't have a, a statement pre-Constantine um, uh, among a Christian leader that wasn't that wasn't nonviolent. Like like nonviolence was almost like the assumed position of the early church pre-Constantine, or or caring for the poor. Um, yeah, 
to be a Christian meant you cared for the poor. Like that wasn't up for debate, you know? Uh, but today we might need a statement on this is part of the Christian identity as, as we care for the poor and marginalized. So, so I, like I, I, anyway, so I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with you. I think I would want to maybe bring in, I think in our day and age, there's a, uh, there is a need to yeah. affirm the creeds, but also to have discussions about what it, ortho orthopraxy what does it mean to actually follow jesus do you have any thoughts on that am i <laughs> well i 100 percent agree with you and i think um kind of the way that i navigate those waters is in both the apostles creed and the nicene creed they affirm jesus as lord and so okay. you know and yeah. back in those yeah. days as, as you're aware like that's not just a, a spiritual sky daddy term for jesus that's a very political um like not caesar is lord you, you tweeted this last night calling jesus is yeah. lord means caesar is not lord and so if Jesus is Lord, and if you're going to uh, proclaim your allegiance to Jesus and faith in the mission of Jesus, then I think it's given that you're going to have a pretty nonviolent ethic. You're going to have a concern for the marginalized. You're going to let Jesus define right and wrong when it comes to sexuality. That's what it means to fall under the lordship of Jesus. And so I think that the creeds do actually provide an orthopraxis um, if you understand what lordship meant back then. But yeah. We don't yeah. really understand that right now. <laughs> like yeah. lordship. So in a sense, I mean, uh, I'm gonna tip my hat to uh, John MacArthur here. Um, the early church <laughs> believed in lordship salvation. Now, <laughs> that's an old debate in a subset of Christianity from like 1982. You know, lordship salvation, whatever. Anyway, um, but yeah, I think that yeah, maybe so they had a better understanding of what, and of Lord, the Lordship of Jesus, and also what baptism meant too. Like that had cultural currency that to be baptized in the faith was to leave behind your old life to take on this radical new ethic. Like that was just kind of what baptism meant. But today people get baptized unless they're really taught what it means. I mean, that's, they don't have that kind of understanding. Yeah. You, going on the term, I, I like what you said, you know, you made a comment about conservative, you know, you feel your liberal friends think you're too conservative. Your conservative friends think you're too liberal. I just, I, I have a problem with those terms, actually. This is why I rarely, if ever, use them to describe myself because the term conservative, it, it's always in reference to the person using the term like, oh, Tony, you're conservative. That assumes that my position is right, like the correct one, and you're to the right of me, but I'm the standard, you know? Or it's, Tony, you're too liberal, and that's because I have the right position. You're just you're 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 deviating to the left. The left of what? Well, <laughs> the left of what the user thinks to be true, and it's it's just such yeah. a narcissistic, intrinsically narcissistic uh, phrase. Now, now I know there's some cultural currency with conservative liberal, but in in evangelicalism, when it's kind of lobbed as an accusation or somebody slapping the label on you, I just think, who are you? You know, I, people think I'm too conservative because I you know, believe in traditional marriage or whatever. Um, other people think I'm a flaming liberal because I don't read other King James, you know, but all that, all that is, is the other person's reference point is the standard. And that's just, anyway, well, a little hobby horse is, that I just wanted to air out. <laughs> well, And it's also the person's way of like getting permission to judge you. Like if, if I find out that you're liberal, then I have permission to dismiss everything you're about to say or wholeheartedly endorse everything you're about to say. It's it's a way of bypassing nuance and complexity and just attaching yourself to a title. Right. Yeah, that's good. Hey, well, let, let's get, get into your, your story with your own uh, journey with sexuality. Yeah. So um, can, can we go deeper into your, your 
your past yeah. teenager when did you kind of realize you were same-sex attracted how did you handle that uh what did that <laughs> journey look like for you yeah i so um i was 12 years old when i first realized it and i realized it when i i had a dream uh that i was cuddling with one of my best friends and um freaked me out and you know i i I lived in a household where my family had um, our neighbors across the street were a lesbian couple. And uh, they were really, to my parents' credit, they were really good friends with my mom and dad. Like they would go on double dates and all that stuff. And so my parents in the 90s were doing more than most Christians would feel safe doing now. Um, but they they told my brother and I that they were just roommates, that they weren't a lesbian couple. And um, I, at one point, I was just like, okay, well, there's the three-bedroom house, and they share a bedroom with a queen-size bed in it. I think they're lesbians. <laughs> um, it, 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 what it did with me is, like, it kind of, I didn't realize this at the time, but it kind of taught me that this is something that's so bad and so shameful um, that we don't even want our kids to know we're being associated with it. And, and there's a good impulse there. Like there's a good impulse to um, have their kids raised with a biblical view of sexuality. And there's a good impulse to um, protect us. But what that did for me was when I realized uh, that I had that same kind of internal struggle was it made me feel like a monster. Um, and it taught me that, that I can't talk to my parents because they can't even associate with, they can't even let us know that there are, their friends are lesbians. Like how are they going to feel about their son? Wow. And so... I, uh, you know, I did everything I could at 12 years old to, to just block that friend out of my life. What I knew him from church. And so I went and sit next to him at youth group and I would keep my distance as much as possible. But that summer, uh, we went to church camp together and we were in a cabin with three other boys. And I, I need to go back and ask my youth pastor why this was allowed, but we didn't have any leaders in our cabin. It was just five middle school boys in the cabin. Like, and I, I, I think they didn't have enough volunteers coming on that camp or what, but it was, I, I'm thinking now, I'm a youth pastor now, and I, I would, I don't even know how that flied, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> so we, uh, you know, I don't know if you've ever been to camp, but like, it's mm -hmm. when you're a middle school boy, it is like, you're up until three o'clock in the morning every night and, uh -huh. um, you're crying a lot at chapel in the evening and then you go home and, yeah. or you go back to your cabin and you talk super late. And, um, by the third night there, uh, like my feelings had fully revisited for this friend um, and everybody else in the cabin was, was knocked out and exhausted. And um, this friend and I talked and, and, uh, and he kissed me. And um, it was one of those moments where wow. I, after he, he was done, he went, went back to his bunk and we went to sleep and I just sobbed all night and um, just quietly to myself and just kept thinking like, like, this is the end of your life. This is the end of your life. And I make mention of this in my book, but the fact that I knew that, um, it went against God's like wishes for me to, to be same sex attracted before I knew that things like lust and, and violence and greed were bad, like is really telling about kind of this cultural backlash the church is experiencing and how we've prioritized things. Um, you know, in an ideal world, the moment a kid starts experiencing this stuff, they should be able to go directly to their parents without fear that they're going to be a homeless youth or be rejected or be sent away to a camp or be exposed in front of the whole youth group. And so I went back home and, you know, my parents gave me big hugs, but I felt 10 miles away from them. And, um, and I, I kept it really, really close to the chest and, when I got into high school, I had a few other experiences. Um, 
have some parties and I'd get drunk and high and um, and actually like the I call it the mo- I, I was raised in a Christian home but the moment I I got saved I was I was 16 years old and um, I had already tried to commit suicide once by this point um, and uh, it was about one o'clock in the morning and I got up and I went snuck into my parents room and I took my dad's uh, revolver out of his gun, out of his dresser drawer and went and sat in my bedroom. And, um, and I was sitting there and I was, I was, I was, re- I had, I didn't like have the gun to my head or anything, but like I had was building the internal resolution to just like do it. And, and I thought through like, well, my parents would think what, that the shot would wake them up and they'd run into the room and, and what they were going to see. And, and where my head was at at the time was shame had so so distorted by thinking that that I really believed that my parents would rather that outcome than hear the truth about what I was experiencing. And um, at 1.30 in the morning, I get a phone call from one of my youth leaders who was in uh, California visiting family. And I'm like, it's what, and I think something's wrong. And I answer the phone. I'm like, what's, what's going on, dude? And, um, and he says, I don't know how to describe it to you, but I was, I was playing video games with my best friend. And um, and I just started thinking about you and I just started crying. And he said, so I, I stopped playing video games. I went outside. I started praying for you. And he said, and I don't know what's going on, Tony, but I just felt like God wanted me to call you and, and just tell you that, that he loves you and he sees you. Um, and he said, and I want you to get your Bible and I want you to ring, read Psalm five to me. And so I pick up my Bible and, and Psalm five, it starts out with just David acknowledging that God uh, considers every sigh and, and accounts them and he hears them and he sees them. And, um, and, and my friends just said, you know, Tony, like God sees you and he hears you. And, and I don't know what you're experiencing, but like he loves you. And, um, and I, 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 I didn't tell him then he knows now what was going on, but I didn't tell him at the time, like what had happened. I just, you know, thank you so much, man. And, um, and so I hung up the phone and I got up to put, uh, to go get a glass of water out of the kitchen. And when I go out to the kitchen, uh, my mom had this kind of glass cross on her windowsill and uh, something about like the way the porch light was shining through the glass cross. It just really, really caught my attention. And um, and I just it was as if like God just downloaded into me. Um, he just said, you know, I, I died on that cross like so that nothing stands between us now, um, not your struggles with your sexuality, nothing like and. Um, and I said, yeah, but this thing I've been praying for you to take away, you won't take it away. And, and he just reiterated, like, the only thing that stands between us is love. Just follow me and I'm going to give you life that's thrilling and fulfilling, I promise. And wow. so wow. that moment on, like, that was just, I was, I was, went from like party kid stoner, like to just straight up Bible man, Jesus man, yeah. started a Bible study on my school that had 150 kids come into it. Like, it was just like, it was wild. And so that was like. Jesus saved me in that moment. What's so cool about it is I didn't talk to anybody about this piece of my story until I was 23. Um, But like, I know for a lot of people, God is the least safe place to talk about this with. But when I was struggling and would start developing feelings for somebody or any of those things, like God was the only one I could talk to about it. And it was always safe. And it was always kind of gave me the strength to keep going until like, I got to where I am. And so that's, that's kind of how my story played out. Um, yeah. Oh, golly. That, that'll make a Pentecostal out of you, your friend. Calling <laughs> you. <laughs> God, well, I mean, I, 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 it's sad because I, I've heard versions of your story among so many other people that 
experience an attraction to the same sex. It's that, that, that trajectory of realization then begins just tons and tons of shame. And then usually middle of their teenage years, there's for sure suicide ideation, if not attempt or completion. And that that's what in your own experience, I know you walk with several people that have similar stories. Is that that internalized shame as an early teen? Is that what you yeah. say? It's pretty universal. Um, it, yeah, absolutely. And was there was there things that the church was doing, or that people around you were doing, maybe unintentionally, that compounded that shame, or was it just strictly between you and God, or both and? Or I think the stuff that compounded it was um, I had never met anyone or heard from anyone. Uh, who was following Jesus that was same-sex attracted, like ever. Didn't know anyone. That's why I'm open about my story. I mean, I'm married to a woman. I'm in love with my wife. I'm attracted to my wife. I could easily, like, just write this off as, as a weird season when I was in high school and not and not talk about it. But I think it's so important to talk about it because I, if I had known or seen somebody who was following Jesus faithfully and who, who experienced the same struggles as me, like, it would have been a pathway to life. Like, absolutely. And so, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so so I think not being exposed to that, it was so, the only time it came up was when it was being compared to pedophilia and when it was being compared to just monstrosity stuff. And so I didn't hear about it as any complex, like, layered nuanced ways. So would you say, I mean, um, a, a really important thing a church can do is to have actual people share their stories. I mean, just, is that, yes. I, I encourage people in the work of their testimony. Like yeah. that's, and yeah, that alone just gives loads of people hope. Cause there's so many people in our churches that are struggling privately. The percentages mm-hmm. are, the statistics don't, they don't lie. Well, I mean, they can be bent and whatever, but it's the, you know, the statistics don't lie because I get the emails. You know, <laughs> I love when people say, "Hey, Preston, can you keep a secret?" And I said, "If you knew all the secrets, all the <laughs> closeted pastors I know that wrestle with their sexuality, that you know, elders' wives and people that people would recognize, you know, it's 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 mm-hmm. so much more common than people realize." And I, you know, I and I think you've heard me say this. You know, I, it cracks me. Oh, it doesn't crack me up. I mean, but. I don't want to be too cynical, but when pastors say, you know, oh yeah, Preston, thanks for the work you do, but you know, we don't have this problem. We don't have this problem. <laughs> we yeah. don't have this issue at our church. You know, I'm like, uh, not an issue. Uh, and secondly, yep. <laughs> you do, you just have created a culture <laughs> where you're kind of blind to it. Like, um, um, you did share your story. Can you talk about this? I mean, you did share your story at church. Um, how, how'd that go? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, oh, there's kind of two sides to the same coin. So on one side, my sharing my story was an overwhelmingly positive experience. Um, just, and, and especially, gosh, like I, I was, I'm a youth pastor at my church. And so I was just so proud of my, my high schoolers when, you know, they kind of responded to it and just lots of love and their families were great. But there were, um, there were a few families who, uh, I, you know, I went up there and, and I'm, a, I am in a four square church and, and we, we, my pastor like did a great job at prefacing, Hey, like this is, we have a traditional view of marriage here. Like, um, Tony's on our staff. He's, he's with us. He's on our team. And, um, but he, we need to share his story cause it's important. And even with all of those caveats and 
qualifications beforehand, um, there were still several families who left, um, a few who, who wouldn't even talk to me, uh, one who did, um, and it wasn't the most they tried to be very cordial, but it was it was a pretty hurtful conversation. And so some people and, and part of the, the reason why some of them left is they didn't want their kid. They wanted their kid to think that this was a thing that's unusual, that doesn't happen to people um, and and that it's a chosen kind of chosen life of sin. And I was very clear and I, I will be very clear that I don't know why I struggle with this. I. I don't know if there's some suppressed trauma that's like caused it or if I was born this way or what, but the why isn't as important as the fact that nothing I've ever done has worked in making it go away. So I can't say with any integrity that it's a, it's a thing I chose. Um, and that was kind of a straw that broke the camel's back for a few families was they, they would have been fine with it if I had said, yeah, I made a partnership with the devil and, and just haven't gone back on it yet or something like that. Like they're, 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 um, I'll even say political, social, I don't want to say th like theological assumptions were so thick that your story was interrupting that was challenging that. And they just couldn't, I mean, that, right. They couldn't let go of that. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that, that's, even... that's not uncommon in other issues when, when fundamental beliefs are shaken either you have to go through a deconstruction process, which can be scary, or you just callous it over, you shut it out because the foundations are being interrupted. Um, so I, I, I don't, I, I, from a psychological perspective, I guess it's not, I can understand why someone would hunger down like that, but that's just, how did you, how did you feel? I, I mean, you said before, you know, you felt you, when you're an early teen, you kind of felt like a monster. I mean, did that bring up, issues of shame it, and all that stuff from the past. I mean, thoughts that ran through my head that couple weeks after that was, I will never be acceptable. Um, like, and even, and it's so sad because, because like, I, I'm not exaggerating when I say there was overwhelming positivity to, yeah. and some very, very conservative people, really? like just okay. thank me and telling me that they loved me. And, um, so like, I don't want to mischaracterize my church, but like there was, um, just, I mean, I'm sure you know this, but negative stuff, just because of how we're biologically designed, like it sticks to us like Velcro, positive stuff bounces off Teflon. Like it's just, because when we were picking berries as cavemen and we saw a saber-toothed tiger, that needed to draw our attention more than the berries. And so, is that what like, it is? Does this go into our kind of animalistic instincts? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, so, but gosh, just the fact that three out of the hundred were, um, yeah not just upset at me, but leaving because of me. And, you know, then you think, gosh, I'm disappointing my, my lead pastor and my team and um, all that stuff. And so, yeah, I just, I remember thinking a lot, like I'm never going to be acceptable. I'm not going to be good enough. Um, I, church is not going to be a safe place for me. Um, so yeah, it was hard. It, it sucked. I want to talk about your, um, your, your marriages briefly, and I don't want to um, put your, yeah, I, I'm protective of people's personal lives and stuff. So if there's certain things you don't want to talk about, let me know. I just, um, in, in, you know, a lot of people know the work that I do, helping pastors engage this conversation. And um, one of, the, honestly, bro, I don't know if I've told you this, but I've told other people this. One of the highlights of my ministry, man, was watching you and your wife um, uh -huh. on stage share your story uh, over in, uh, in Salem, right? Um, that was powerful, dude. 
that was powerful. Like mm. hearing you and your wife talk about both the struggles that your unique marriage has had, but then dude, to, to hear your wife and no, uh, well, both your wife and you, I think both of you kind of teared up looking at each other saying, I can't imagine my life without you. That, that yeah. I, I get choked up even I'm not, I'm not a choke up kind of person, but I was like, <laughs> man, that, that's just, that's a, that's just like a transcendent kind of love, you know? Yeah. Um, can you unpack? So yeah, you're same sex attracted and you would say, well, let me ask you that. Well, yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to tell your story for you. How does that go for you in your marriage? Talk, talk to us about your, your marriage and how you've had to navigate that. Yeah. I call my, my wife's name is Kelsey and I call her the, the girl of my dreams because um, I, I, didn't think that it was going to be an option for me to to fall in love with a woman and to be genuinely attracted to a woman and um, and so my wife is when we got married she was just this like <laughs> kind of fragile like very very unassuming very just like uh, don't see me and and uh, I mean you're into the enneagram lately so like she's a typical enneagram nine just peacemaker to the max just. Uh, more than willing to be a doormat um but hold on i'm sorry preston my dog is being ridiculous is no, this no, okay to... no, worries, no you can bring him <laughs> the camera if you want <laughs> i'll be right back uh, <laughs> anyways. she uh anyway so after but after hearing my story like my wife and i and i she didn't know this about me before we got married and so, like that's a really big blow to take and yeah. um and, you know, there was there was questions like, well, do you know anybody that you in our lives who we find attractive? And I'm like, well, I'm not anybody that I'm like gunning for, like like fantasize about. But, yeah, I, there's there's friends who, who I can see are attractive. And um, and so she had to get like she had to make a decision like she was either going to spend the rest of her life just really insecure and afraid that I had doubled my options for infidelity or um, she was going to have to get tough and, and trust me. And, um, and she just got super, super tough and super trusting. And we, we, in our first year of marriage, like we learned more lessons about each other than I think most couples learn in their first five years of marriage. And, um, and she is like so trusting, like she, I don't even know how to describe it. Like when I first kind of came out to her, like I let her look through my phone all the time and I let her just like have full access to, to my information so that she knew nothing was, was being kept in private. And, and I know that like, there's always going to be like a, a little voice in her head. That's just like keeping the people closer eye on that guy. Um, but like she, she's just accepted me and loved me and embraced me and trusted me and um, has been pivotal in me like coming to terms with myself and and learning to not like hate myself because of this piece like without her there's no version of me being able to just talk about this openly without being a shell of anxiety wow golly what would you say so well first of all i was gonna ask how long in your marriage before you came out was this in the first year uh like four months four oh, or five months gosh. <laughs> yeah yeah, no foundation built <laughs> before then. Yeah, you've been married how long now? We've been married. We just uh, we celebrated five years in December. Okay. Now some people are going to latch on to this, right, and say, "Oh, so sexual attractions do change. Reparative therapy does work." Um, I mean, the, <laughs> my my listeners who are part of maybe an ex-gay um, movement would be like, 
See, you know, I, I, is that what's going on here? Or how would you describe your, uh, I don't, I don't even say change your journey. <laughs> Keep it yeah, neutral. I'm actually really cautious. Um, something, I think I told you this before I, we spoke in Salem and I told my pastor this before I talked to the church, like, I'm not down for like my story being used as an example of reparative therapy working or, or God changing people's sexuality. Cause that, that's not the case. Like mm-hmm. me struggling the way I struggle has presents a unique set of challenges for us, um, that my wife and I have had to work through and I'm not, my sexuality isn't changed. I'm not healed. I'm not, none of that stuff. Like it's, it's still, um, still something that, I mean, I don't like saying I struggle with because it's not like I'm always checking out dudes or watching porn or anything like that. But it's still like yeah. a reality for me. Yeah. And um, and I also think that the the consequences of let giving LGBTQ people that hope that God is just going to take away their sexuality can have can be pretty sad and pretty yeah. traumatic. Yeah. And I know for me, like it raised a lot of questions when I thought that God wanted to change me and he didn't change me about how I felt about the goodness of God. So, yeah. so, um, so I've got several friends who have similar marriages, um, but you know, mixed orientation marriage is how some people frame it. And they, and I don't want to say this is you, but I would love to know if you resonate with it. They, you know, they said, um, for instance, I mean, Nate, my, our friend, Nate Collins, who's shared a story several times publicly said, um, and the difference is when, he was open with his wife before they got married. He's attracted to guys. She's um, also attracted to the guys. <laughs> um, uh, and so he was open with it, whatever. And in a sense, they went into marriage thinking like, I'm marrying my best friend, not sexually attracted to her, but I am very much emotionally drawn to her, whatever, but not to any other women. I could sit in a room full of naked women. It's not gonna do anything for me, you know? So he wouldn't say he's like bisexual, but over time he says, yeah, I mean, unexpectedly romantic, even sexual feelings have cultivated just for his wife, not for any other uh, females. Yeah. So I'm like, God, must be nice. <laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> we, w- would you because you said you are attracted to your wife. Is that the way I describe kind of Nate's story? Is that does that resonate with kind of your journey or would yours be? How would you how is yours? I had different. There was like two or three other girls growing up that I was really genuinely attracted to and had crushes on. Okay. Um, so, I mean, are you familiar with the Kinsey, like, yeah. swimmer, yeah. like, zero being totally straight, yeah. six being, like, only into dudes? Um, I probably, like, am a four on the, on the Kinsey spectrum is kind of how I – it's been the best metaphor for me to kind of gauge myself. Um, so when, when people do ask me – I mean, the term I use – uh, is the same sex attracted. And, and, and that's less because I have hangups with the term bisexual and more because other people have hangups and okay. it's just easier okay. to listen to me and accept me from more conservative yeah. people if I don't use some of the more loaded language, yeah. but yeah. I am bisexual. Like that is. Okay. That, yeah. That's, um, yeah, I, 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 I like, I mean, I know Kinsey's it's been critiqued on, several for several reasons but the general gist of seeing sexuality in terms of a spectrum i I think is not just helpful i think it's just true and scientific um that and and i think this is where i do get a little nervous with some identity terms um gay straight bisexual is it seems to it seems to kind of it seems to kind of think of sexuality in terms of three kind of distinct 
categories rather than a spectrum that kind of bleeds into each other. You know, I mean, um, you probably, I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Lisa Diamond, who's done a lot of work on, um, sexuality with females and, you know, um, you know, the title of her book I'm looking for right now is, you know, sexual fluidity, understanding a woman's love and desire. She, and she's a lesbian, she's atheist, lesbian, whatever, but she was blown away at seeing how just fluid the sexuality among women is it's been her kind of life work and and then she you know she later said actually i think it's a little more fluid with men as well and she's in she's very adamant i'm not talking about sex change all this stuff those stupid christians talk about you know like it's not sex change <laughs> sexual orientation change efforts um that's not at all and i hate it when my work is used in that direction i'm just saying uh the general categories of our orientation might be helpful but to think that there's three distinct categories of humans, gay, straight, bisexual. It's just, a, it just doesn't match the scientific data. Um, our sexuality is unpredictable. It's, um, it is af affected by the environment. It's also affected by our biology and upbringing. Like it's just a big blurry mess, really <laughs> not mess, but I mean, yeah. it's, it's complex. Everybody's sexuality is, is complex, but, um, anyway, um, Let's go back to your de your theological deconstruction. Um, do you have any certain theological themes where you kind of went through a deconstruction reconstruction uh, process, and what are those themes, and what did that look like for you? Um, yeah, so I think for me, um, what God looks like is like was the biggest one. I, I spent a lot of time. Um, kind of having a very firm belief that Jesus loved me, but his dad didn't like me very much. And, um, and so I'm, I'm really glad that that Jesus's dad killed him so that I can be accepted by his dad. <laughs> like, like that was, that was the viewpoint at the time. And, um, you know, for me nowadays, um, one of my, I think my biggest conviction is that like Jesus is what God looks like. Like if you have a theology of God that, that doesn't look like Jesus, um, I, I, my my hair my ears perk up and I'm very curious as to like um, the consistency of that theology. I, I love the way Brian Zahn talks about yeah, it doing violence. You've been reading a lot of Zahn apparently. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he, he, yeah, I mean, but not just Zahn, but I mean, you, even you talk about this and fight a little bit. Like Jesus, I mean, the Hebrews one, he's the exact representation of his of his being. And um, so for me, like if Jesus is God and like Jesus is King and Lord and all of that stuff, then, um, that's the best news in the world. Like that's, that's not just good news. That's the best news. And, um, so I think that's, that's, a, that's a big deal is because a lot of us, and it's cliche to say at this point, but a lot of us start our theology in Genesis three, not Genesis one, where yeah. we're separated from God rather than initially being created very good and blessed in God's image. Um, and Jesus is like the calling back to that Genesis one state of being. And so, um, that is, that's probably the biggest one is, is I, I have kind of done away with a lot of distinctions between like God, the father and Jesus. I, I understand they function differently in the Trinity and in scripture, but like, I think when God sent Jesus, like he was letting the world know, this is what I'd look like. Yeah. My favorite part of my, well, yeah, Hebrews one and also John one, where you have, I think it's verse 16 or 17 where it says Jesus is, and I don't even know the English translation, but the, the Greek uses the word, the where you get the word exegesis from. Like when we exegete scripture, right? We go and we draw out the meaning and it says yeah. Jesus does that to our concept of theos, of God. 
He is the exegesis of what it means to be divine. Um, yeah. It's powerful, man. And it, it, I'm not a Trinitarian theologian. I'm sorry. I, I believe in a Trinity almost. <laughs> but I'm not, you know, there's people that really are specialists in Trinitarian thought. So I, I you know, um, I, I don't know how to work all that out. But yeah, to see Jesus as the exegesis of the Father and not distinct person, but same God, that one in essence, three distinct persons, that mystery, you know, uh, yeah. is hard to get your mind around. But um, yeah, that's good, man. What, what else? Any other uh, themes that uh, was no, there I, anything that caused you to question your faith or where you went down a road where you're like, dude, I don't know if I can be a Christian anymore. Like I'm just rethinking some serious things. Uh, yeah. Let me, there's, there's three key things and, and I'll, I'll, I'll break them down like kind of one at a time. Um, the, the, the first, I would say the biggest one was after I had uh, stopped working at the church, I started working at a, a halfway house for kids transitioning out of juvenile detention center. Um, and these kids were criminals and predators and like going to have a history for the rest of their lives. Um, and so I, and you know, broken people break people. And so these kids weren't this way for no reason. And uh, there was this one kid uh, who, who really, really tugged at my heart. And, and I, I'm not going to say his real name, but in the book, I call him Jack. And Jack was just like, super committed to his process, super committed to doing well in life, had, had, I mean, Preston had experienced horrors that before I started working there, I didn't even know another person could do this to a kid. Like it was, it was stuff that was just like paradigm shifting the level of evil that this kid had to endure. And, um, this kid was an atheist. And, um, I, I mean, at that time, just very understandably <laughs> like that, because how do you believe in a God of love and justice and peace when, and he prayed for God to protect him all the time when he was being abused wow. and raped and tortured and, and God, this stuff still happened to him. And I remember one day at, at the shelter I was working at, this kid had received some bad news. And so he locked himself in the bathroom and he broke the bathroom, uh, the mirror in the bathroom and he slid his wrists. And, you know, I remember I grabbed the pliers and cause when we heard the crash and broke open the bathroom door and, and gonna kind of held him and wrapped some paper towels around his, his wrists and had his blood all over me and um, went with him to the emergency room and my supervisor and I, cause the kid doesn't have any parents. So we sat with him in the emergency room and um, and they had bandaged him up and sewed his arms back up and put bandages around him and he was sleeping and um, I'm sitting in there and I've got his blood on me and I'm trying really, really hard to pray for him. I'm trying just like, God, just uh, heal his mind, heal his body, like just, just help him, see him that you're there. and and the more I prayed, like the more disingenuous I felt. And I realized like, I, I don't believe in this stuff anymore at that time. And, and one of the big reasons for that was because, because this kid was an atheist, if he had succeeded in killing himself, my belief at that time meant he had to go to hell to be tortured forever. And, um, and I, that, uh, at the point, at that point, in my understanding of God at that time, like that was unacceptable. Um, that like God would neglect to protect him, um, give him every reason in the world to to be an atheist, and then allow him to kill himself and then go to hell forever. Like that, I just couldn't find a way to define that as good. Um, so that's that's the first like big thing. Um, but then that that leads into other stuff like like how I read the Bible uh, was something that that really tripped me up in my understanding of violence at the time and and believing that it was pleasing to God, the violence that was, that's taking place, not just in scripture, but in our world today. And, 
Um, I remember one night, like I, I was, I was re- going through my devotions and I had the habit of just Genesis to Revelation over and over and over again. And I was in first Samuel, I think it's chapter nine when it might be a later chapter, but when Saul doesn't kill all of the Amalekites, like God had asked him to do. 15. And is Samuel 15. Um, and, uh, and I, and there's a lot of nuance to that story and stuff. And I, but my reading at the time needed a lot of work. And so what I read was like, okay, this God is so obsessed with violence and kind of vengeance and anger and that he's going to reject his first chosen King because the King didn't carry out the violence to the extent that was pleasing to God. And like, that's actually how you and I even met. Cause I sent you that, that question, <laughs> just like, what the heck is going on here? But like, that was, um, yeah. So those, those are the few things that my reading of scripture, my understanding of violence, my belief in like how God works in the world, um, yeah. were yeah. things that needed that kind of caused my deconstruction that led me to a little bout of atheism for a couple months. Dude, that, that, Thanks for sharing that. I, I, I struggle with that. I would say more and more. I, don't, I haven't talked about this too much on my podcast, but I, I, um, when you think about just the whole problem of evil, just that, that horrendous suffering, um, like the story you shared, like I, 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 I don't know what to do with that. And, and I, I know the theologically right answers, at least some of them, some of them, I don't think they're theologically right, you know? Um, but, um, I think, I don't know. I wonder if Greg Boyd is probably closer to the truth and how he, um, works through the intersection between divine providence, human agency and sin and so on. Um, still thinking through all that, but I, I just struggle. I, you know, I struggle with is, the uh, the passages in scripture over and over and over that seem to say God is promising, I will protect you. I mm. will not let you be harmed. And I know some of those might be personal momentary things to an individual, but you have some throughout the Psalms that just seem to be more absolute and more global or, yeah. okay. Matthew five or six. Um, don't worry about tomorrow. Look, will not God, God will provide for your needs. He takes care of the lilies in the field. I'm like, well, what about the millions of people that have starved to death? Right? Did, did that? How do you explain that? And let's say, okay, well, they weren't Christians. Oh, yeah. what? Some of them were. <laughs> One of them was. Yeah. Um. How? How how do you reconcile that? You know, and I, I just I, I struggle, I and I struggle with Christians that kind of flippantly quote those passages without even wrestling with it. Kind of like, you know, oh, you know, I was um, gonna get in the, I, I, you know, God sent His angels to protect me, you know, from a car accident, and I got away safe. I'm like, that's great, praise God for that. Where was he yeah. with the person behind you that did get in Iraq and died? What about yeah. the kid that, you know, God saved my kid from cancer. You know, the cancer went away at two years old. That's awesome. And I praise that. What about the m- many others that he didn't? Why didn't he, you know, and these are classic problems. So I'm not, I'm not saying anything that people haven't thought through. I guess yeah. I, I used to be more comforted by kind of the cliched Christian answers. 
And now I just, I'm not as comfortable with them anymore. And I don't know what to do with that. I, it, it, um, and I do think, and this might, I'll probably lose a few followers here, but I, I do think <laughs> that Christian um, universalism is, in my mind, probably the only real theological response that actually satisfies my soul. Yeah. <laughs> I just can't get there because of scripture. And I'm, and I'm, and I am actually, and I'm actually fine. And I think God's fine with me sitting here in my confusion, maybe even frustration. Um, and, and, and yet to conclude, say, God, but I, I do trust you. I don't understand you. I'm not always happy with this situation, but I, I'm committed to following your word, even if it doesn't make sense. Even if I think a better reading of scripture makes more sense, I just can't get there. Um, yeah. So Tony, am I a heretic? You're a pastor. Can you pastor me through this? <laughs> no, I'm not. You're my pastor. I'm not. <laughs> um, I do want to say I, because uh, I think part of the problem with using those verses that are kind of bumper sticker verses is uh, it's a great way of bypassing having to sit in the messiness of the moment. Um, and I did that a lot. And then when I started working at the halfway house, it was no longer an option to bypass it. I was yeah. confronted with it every day and watching, I mean, innocent kids, like only making the horrendous choices they made because it was done to them first and it messed up their hardwiring and their brain. And now all they know mm -hmm. is like sexual expression is dominance and they can't get aroused unless it's that context. And like it messes people up really, really bad. And they didn't ask for that. And so, but here's, 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 this is kind of how the story ends because this kid is actually, uh, really kind of fundamental to my journey because, um, a couple months later, he, he's back at our halfway house. He's, he's, he's all healed up. He's doing great. And I'm and just killing it, like getting good grades in, in homeschool wow. and, and being a leader in the, the group talks I was leading at the time and, um, just doing amazing. And so one day we, we took the kids out to, uh, in Eugene, we have a place called Skinner's Butte where you can just see all the lights in the city and it's beautiful. And we would take the kids there at nighttime so they can get out of the house and stretch their legs. And he and I were walking and talking and, um, and I was saying to him, I was like, man, you've just, you've made such a turnaround and I'm so proud of you. And I asked him, I said, what, what changed in you? And at this point I didn't believe in God at all. Like I, I was, I had resolved that I was done. Like, um, and he says to me, he says, it's like, something from outside of myself is telling me that my life matters. And he says, and I can't, can't describe it. And he said, but I just feel, he said, I never believed in God before, but I feel like God is, is making something really cool out of my life. And you know, he talked to me about how he was learning about um, mosaics and, and how mosaics are broken pieces brought together to make something beautiful and, and how he thinks God is making art out of his life. And, um, and I was just like, Whoa, <laughs> like, it was like, one of those moments and, and he was like, you know, you used to be a pastor. Do you think that's God? And, and I was like, could be like maybe. And, and I went home that night and, um, and I sat in my car and my, my head's just spinning. And, and I'm thinking about, uh, that night that like my friend called me, um, when I was wanting to kill myself. And, and I was like, there's a lot of evidence where I could, I could buy into this, this narrative to make sense of my world that says there is no God. Like I can, I can do that. And I'm actually functioning quite well as a non-believer. Like I'm not, I'm not doing meth. I'm not cheating on my wife. I'm not clubbing baby seals. Like I, I am like, I'm still me as a non-believer. Um, but like, then there's this whole other thing of like, 
what if it is Jesus that is mm. healing this mm. kid and speaking to him? And like, what if it is God that is like, for all of the scary and pain and evil in the world, there's just as much inexplicable beauty and goodness. And, and how do you explain that? And, yeah. um, and so yeah. for me, it's like, I get to just decide that I'm going to, I'm buying into this narrative, even if there's days where I don't believe it. And there are still days where I'm like, I'm not sure I believe all of this yeah. stuff, but I'm choosing faith and I'm, I'm choosing this story to make sense of my world. And, yeah. um, yeah. and so that, that, and so, and even really cool Preston is just a couple nights before, um, we're recording this interview is, uh, that kid reached out to me on Facebook and I hadn't talked to him in years. And he's just, he's just like, Hey, like I graduated high school. I'm doing amazing. Like I'm working full time. I'm living on my own. Uh, and it's all cause of you and the people at looking glass. Thanks so much. And sent me this video that Oregon youth authority recorded for his graduation ceremony and all this stuff. Like it's just, so God is good still. Like it's just not as formulaic as I want it to be and as predictable as I want it to be. That's That's a good word, man. That's so good. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. And I, yeah, whenever I come into those moments of doubt, um, which is frequent, you know, several times mm-hmm. out a, a day, sometimes I'm like, am I sure this thing's real? Like, what? Yeah. <laughs> you know, or, you know, God, you're, if, if you're real, why don't you just manifest yourself to everybody? Boom, here I am. Follow me. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, you know, maybe some Pentecostal friends would say, I, I happens every day to me. You know, I just, I don't, I don't have those yeah. kind of audibles, you know? Um, so, uh, yeah, I don't, but when I struggle, I do come down to okay. What are my options? Nihilism, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, another religion, you know. And I kind of go down the list of like, at the end of the day, I'm going to choose faith, not because it makes perfect sense, not because I understand everything, um, but every system has its holes, its kinks, its mysteries, the things we don't understand, the things that can produce even outrage in us. Um, and I think that's okay. I think there's a reason why God included the Psalms, Lamentation, Lamentations, um, Ecclesiastes, Job in the Bible, you know, the, these books that maybe not Job so much, but like Lamentations. What I love about Lamentations, um, it's a very poetic book. It's a very um, artistically arranged book, very purposeful book. Um, but unlike most psalms which end with a positive uh, resolution where are you god where are you done this you've done that and the last verse is but you are faithful in your loving kindness you know Um, except for psalm 88 psalm 88 has no resolution Um, and neither does lamentation well lamentations the middle of the book right um where we get the song how great is thy faithfulness um chapter three so the center of, of lamentations is that hope but the book ends without being resolved yeah the very last verse and i forget when I, I remember when i looked at it in the hebrew it's it's pretty it's dark man and some english translations whitewash it but um it's like god you are not here the end kind of thing and it's like that's um and but i'm, I'm so glad those books are in scripture because that speaks to the reality of the human experience but also the faith journey that there there are times when you go to bed not believe like you do you're it's not resolved that mystery yeah. that anger is just there you know um but those stories they, like the one you shared man th- those are that's the other side of the story man you can't that mosaic that work of art that's, that's un- unbelievable 
Um, Tony, I'm going to let you go, man. So again, the book is Regenerate, Following Jesus After Deconstruction. Um, I, I think people will probably be watching this before it's available on Amazon, um, but would yeah, highly recommend people to write it down, keep a note of it, and uh, thanks for writing this book, man. I'm, I'm looking forward to reading it. Uh, I feel like I've already kind of read it just by getting to know you, but uh, excited to actually get it all laid out. Preston, thank you so much for um, just being a mentor to me and a friend, and appreciate you a lot, man. Thanks for having me on the show. Thanks, man. My pleasure. Take care.